Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship to your 20 Mission Hive vendor for a special 10% discount on the coolest, most original items in San Francisco. That's 20 Mission Hive with eight vendors and like them on Facebook at 20 Mission Hive. 20 Mission Hive for awesome events and updates. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. and underground space for an event? Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound. I think he smokes too much weed. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a tea she's injecting. Okay, okay. I don't see her as a real man. Whatever. Don't try to talk to me like you know what this is. Yeah, I know I might have symptoms that are familiar to you, but I got this. Thanks anyway. Don't let this eat me alive. I only can see this. So how the hell you gonna stop these voices in my head that got me awfully rocky? Do you copy? Traumatized much from homicide, what? Don't wanna flip, but mama, I must be the one that I trust. I ain't got no friend, I ain't got no grin. But I'm macho when I lock load and I block foes in. When I stop souls and I rock hold, I'ma drop those sins. In a box so slim, inside of my knock grows grim. My hurt, it goes deep. I serve and go weep. A vertical leap when you're alert in your sleep. Was a word of a treatment, somebody murdered more peace. Inside of my third, it's so bleak, done so much dirt, I go leap to cheat. Don't let this eat me alive. I only can see this world from the inside. And I'm holding it inside. 
I've been patiently waiting, can get in time to awake them. Take nine, challenge my mind, and then I got on my grind. I wrote up some rhymes, and now it's time to go get them. Every man, woman, gender neutral, state to state, and back to the future. Yeah, I was in the Navy, born and raised a lady. Jesus Christ, you saved me. A lot is who I'm praising. Y'all we so amazing. Yeah, I need a daily. Y'all know who said that. Tadashi and that lady. Yes, yeah, so I'm a spiritual dude, and guess what? I'm an intellectual too. And just cause I'm pansexual doesn't mean that I wanna lay next to you, dude. Go make me some coffee and roll me a blunt. I'm not here to confront. I just say what I want. If that bothers you, boo, well, you bother me too. I'm untraditional. Uninhibited, uncensored, and authentic. Don't you get it, or did you miss it? Don't let this eat me alive. I only can see this world from the inside. And I'm going it inside. I can cut the back and let it go. And nothing's making sense. And I have no patience for And welcome to the Weekly Review. It's Roman. It's August 26, 2016. Open up the show with a song by Terrence Miller called PTSD. And it's a great song. And I may even play it again on the show because I like it that much. So I'm grateful to be playing some new music from some uh, independent artists out there. <sighs> I'm getting myself settled a little bit. Had a, got a flat tire this morning on the way. Still made it in time, which is nice. It's kind of a... I look for the meaning in almost everything. Uh, for better or for worse, and it's interesting to see, oh, what does this represent? And, of course, a flat tire can represent many things. It's something I'm used to getting. I don't get them too often, but as a bicyclist, uh, it happens from time to time. And not that it's ever a good time to get a flat tire, but it's, oh, it's on the way to the show. And, you know, the days when I kind of don't leave much... That's how it kind of works out. But I got here okay, and that's the moral of the story. There's more to that, and I'm sure as I wake up and uh, wake myself up a little bit more, I'll get more into that. It's been uh, an interesting week. There's just a lot of stupid shit happening, which is how I uh, start the show pretty much every week. And I I don't want to say excuse my language because I feel like there's a lot of righteous anger there, and perhaps that's where it comes out. And I think if one reads the news, and every... Every day there's something happening, and we always, there's a lot of themes on this show. It's a news program, I've been doing this for almost three years now, and one of the, uh, one of the topics and subjects that kind of seems to consistently happen and has been happening for quite some time is people in positions of power who abuse their authority and make life difficult for the rest of us. And we are, we'll see that in a lot of stories where People are just kind of speaking up and trying to, not even trying, but doing, actually protesting what's happening. So, for instance, I went to a couple of actions on Wednesday. That makes sense. Yes, it was Wednesday. And there was one action outside. There was a courthouse on Golden Gate Avenue. And folks are, you know, we're working to get Judge Persky removed from the bench. And uh, he was the, I'll try to use polite language here, but not really. Uh, he was the judge who presided over the, the Brock Turner case, and Brock Turner was the, the Stanford swimmer who uh, raped an unconscious woman. By the way, trigger warning for this entire show, trigger warning. 
Uh, trigger warning for life everywhere we go. And people make jokes about, like, oh, safe spaces, trigger warnings, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, are you just not paying attention to how violent the world is? Is that what's happening? Anyway, so uh, there were some folks who were gathered out front, and uh, they read the letter that the survivor had written about her experience, and folks went upstairs to the, the room and passed out the letter to many folks working there in the courtroom, and I unfortunately got there late. It was one of these situations where I usually bike places, but I was really exhausted that, that morning. I was like, I'll just take public transit, and I'm a big proponent of public transit, and uh, I just missed the Muni. I was like, all right, that's a fine. I'll get on the next one. The next one was late, and then it stopped at one of the stops. I was like, this is going to be the last stop, so I had to go underground, go to a different train, and that one didn't. Long story short, I got there after a lot of things had happened, and I was speaking to a friend. A couple of friends uh, were there, and one friend mentioned that, like, initially, like, thankfully, there was, like, some news crews who were there who were actually were covering what was happening, and uh, which is good because a lot of the time these important things happen and it's up to the individuals to report it to, to say what's actually happening and um, there also were a lot of police officers there now if you know me if you listen to the show and or if you talk to me in person I, I don't have a really I don't have a strong feeling of love towards law enforcement I have a strong feeling of love towards many humans animals the earth I'm a very compassionate person almost to a fault I think um, I do have a lot of anger and distrust towards law enforcement in general. So uh, there also happened to be uh, someone there who was this guy in a suit, I'm also not a huge fan of in general, um, who was there who was like defending the judge and uh, the, the women who were there like really kind of gave it to him and were very like truthful and honest and kind of talked him out of whatever kind of nonsense he was speaking of. And I think of if I were there, if I had made the tra- if I had made the first train, or it's like Sliding Doors Part 2, but not really. Maybe they even made a Sliding Doors Part 2, referencing that movie. Um, but, you know, it's like, what if I had been there? What if I had made it in time to see this? And there wasn't quite an altercation. However, um, th- uh, one of my friends who was there was talking about the experience with the police and how it was one cop in particular who was being a, a dickhead. And... I don't respond well to that, and I can see my, I feel like I handle myself very well a lot of the time. I have a lot of anger, and not to say that someone who reacts does, isn't handling themselves well, because situations of injustice, I think, sometimes require us to, to respond, however that may be, and I think that's very valid. Uh, for my own sake, uh, sometimes I let the anger kind of maybe get the best of me, and in some situations, that might not be the safest or, or wisest uh, choice. So... All things considered, perhaps it was for the best that I was a little bit late because I could very much see myself getting very agitated at certain men in positions of power who are continuing on with the status quo and furthering this kind of oppressive way of being and way of treating people. And when it's in part of the you know judicial system, judi- you know justice in quotation marks. I was interviewed for the uh, someone from KPFA was talking uh, wanted to ask us some questions, and I was like happy to to respond and part of it part of my reasoning is just this i have to like say the justice system justice in quotation marks because we keep on hearing so many examples of how the justice system fails people and quite often it ends up blaming victims and survivors it ends up uh punishing people who it should be protecting sound familiar so uh a friend of mine actually emailed me the story today about how now the the judge is not going to be presiding over criminal cases so um, there is some positive things happening. You know, when folks speak out and take action, uh, it will hopefully, you know, move things in, in 
a better direction. And that's something else I found on the show, too. I do like to have positive news stories. And uh, more often than not, I found that these positive news stories are more often preventing something bad from happening. You know, like there's like a terrible reprehensive bill that's going to be passed and people don't vote on it or, you know, it's not passed. And or cannabis is, you know, decriminalized or legalized somewhere. And it's like, wait, why was it criminalized in the first place? But we know because it's to, you know, lock people up and because other industries can profit off keeping it illegal. We know this. However, that, that's the kind of the common thread. Common thread. Speaking of which, Common Thread Collective, today at Mutiny Radio from 3 to 6 p.m. Um, <laughs> this idea is that so often the positive things, the things that make me happy or make the news happy, I think, the news happy, are just when we prevent, the people prevent something bad from happening. And then that leads me to the second event I went to on Wednesday, which was, uh, there's a huge demonstration um, outside the federal building on Mission and 7th. And thankfully that one I got to early, which was great and got to help set up and felt really good to be there in support of everyone, the speakers and the organizers. And it was calling attention to, I think a lot of folks are aware, but not everyone is aware and the media hasn't totally been covering it very much, surprise, surprise. And that's their, I think they're building up, they're building a pipeline. I think it's about 45% done and it's like going through like North Dakota, South Dakota. And it's, a, it's right along the, Missis, the Missouri River. And um, that's a terrible idea because we know that pipelines leak, like fracking's bad. There's like just a lot of big, there's like so many environmental reasons and also social reasons not to support the pipeline. And so uh, many indigenous folks have been out there and uh, the Sioux have been out there and people have been out there uh, protesting, not even protesting, but they've said protecting, you know, protecting the water. And so then cops have been sent out there because cops protect the rich and the wealthy and business interests. And um, some people have been arrested and they've also, apparently the cops, the the police, they've called the FBI and there's been a lot of suppression. They've been cutting off water supplies for the folks who are out there protecting their land, protecting their land, protecting the earth for everybody. So that was something else that happened. And the event though was very, um, it was really beautiful and seeing so many people kind of come together and so many really great speakers and healers and just recognizing that, yes, we have to protect the earth. And I'll also be reading a few ways that folks, um, if you can't go and help out directly, um, there are, I feel like there's a legal defense fund and a few other ways you can contribute online. And also just by sharing the information with people helps a lot too, just getting it into conversation. I feel like that's another really important, there's a lot of ways to help. There's a lot of ways to protest. There's a lot of ways to change the world. And that's really fortunate. Because even if you can't be there in person, you can still start the conversation. You can, if you have capital, you can donate capital to the folks who are there. Um, there's a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different ways to help. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later. The guest on the show today will be Charlie Toledo. Very much looking forward, excuse me, to talking with Charlie. I met Charlie when she was on Val show, and that's coming up next. That's Women's Magazine with Global Val, and that is on from two to three p.m. So Charlie is with the uh, Suskol uh, Intertribal Council, and very much looking forward to talking with her. And yeah, after we speak with Charlie, then we will go into some more news stories. Um, but definitely wanted to start off the show with, yeah, just talking about the week and the year as it's been. It's been 2016 so far. Uh, folks feel like it's been pretty heavy. There's been a lot of comparisons to 1968. I was not around for that year, but just... Uh, the intensity of it and perhaps I mean I think I do think the intensity has always been there and now things are kind of really coming to a head with a lot of truths being um, revealed and also you know the years when there's the presidential election and I have a joke that's like um, 
yeah, my birthday this year is on the on November eighth. Well, my birthday is always on the same day, but this year happens to be on election day, and I have a joke. It's like, oh, it's uh, my birthday is on uh, every anarchist's least favorite holiday, election day, and that's kind of how I feel. Where it's like so much attention put into something that a lot, many, many folks don't necessarily believe in, and that goes into another statistic that I had read, which was nine uh, percent. Only nine percent of the population in the last primary voted for Clinton or Trump because a lot of folks are ineligible to vote, whether they be children or, you know, f- felons. And I even hate that word. It's like, ugh, like, why are you, la-? anyway, you know, so there, there are those folks who, d- you know, are not able to vote. And then there are the folks who didn't vote, f- you know, who voted for other candidates that were not in the, you know, not in the Republican or Democrat, not or in those parties, but not those two people. And there are folks who voted for third party, you know, like there's just, long story short, very, the, the two folks who are there uh, supposed to represent the country, these two wealthy white folks, uh, supposedly wealthy, wealthy in some ways, uh, are supposed to represent the country when in fact many folks don't necessarily um, support them. And I think that says a lot about the state of affairs where it's we're putting so much energy into some folks that we don't necessarily believe in. And it's a lot of times like not people's first choices. And it's like, I don't want to be president. So I get that it's like not an easy job, but then why do we even have to have this as a job? And also the fact that the US, United States is so large having one person. And I get that's more than one person who's like running things, but why do we need someone running things? Things are pretty messed up. (sighs) Moving along, I don't mention Trump very much on this show. And I, I mean, I'm just, I've been disgusted by him for a very, very, very long time and also reading about what his father's done. Just really terrible. And uh, ugh, ugh. not that you know one shouldn't have to vocally uh, refute or vocally you know, despise people who are doing a lot of negative things in the world. There's a lot of that going around. So I'd like to also you know, spread that around to other folks who might not receive that vitriol, who perhaps should. Definitely not a fan of his. So there are some like, quote unquote, Maybe that'll be the theme of the day. Quotation marks. Uh, Some anarchist in quotation marks group that they're more like libertarian. And anyway, they made these like Trump statues that are like naked and it's super body shaming. It's like fat phobic. It's transphobic. It's intersex phobic. It's like age phobic. It's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I get that. Well, if you don't like it, make your own art. And it's like, well, maybe this is my own art where I just talk and and do that but it's it's really seeing people pose with it was just really triggering for a lot of people myself included um this idea that if your body does not look a certain way that you should be shamed and there's been a lot of there thankfully was a lot of response saying um this is really lowbrow uh there's plenty of reasons to despise this man and his body is or what one imagines his body to be is not one of them and also i feel that criticism goes along with his whole rhetoric which is like really like yeah very lowbrow very base very not saying anything constructive. Like he says so many like xenophobic, hurtful things. Why not focus on that instead of doing something that is supposed to like make him upset and then also makes, will make, has made millions of other people uh, feel low. That's, who is that helping? It's not. So um, something really cool that happened in response to this was that in the Castro where one of the statues is, and I haven't, um, I didn't get to see them. I was totally fine not seeing the statues. there was uh, a local trans man who decided to pose naked um, right beside the statue as a kind of an act of resistance and saying, I love my body. And uh, I thought that was really brave and awesome. So I'll read a little bit about that. Uh, I've posted the info on the Weekly Review webpage, and folks can check that out 
at facebook.com slash weekly rev. And that's where I post most of the news articles. Again, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook. I know that Mark's like, oh, I'm not a fan of him and his policies and a lot of things. However, um, it's, it's I'm not a tech person. So these are the tools we have. I'll use them to the best of my ability. So uh, SFGate covered it, and it's a self-described overweight... (laughs) God, the fucking media in there. Self-described overweight transsexual man explains his Trump statue protest to KTVU's Somerville. And this was written by Frank Somerville. And this came out on Monday, August 22nd. Um, This is Shane Brody, and he has a different take on the naked statue of Donald Trump that was put on display in the Castro last week. You may or may not agree with him. I definitely agree with him. Um, And... So I'm going to read Shane's statement because I don't really care about the media's uh, coverage of it. Uh, My name is Shane Brody. I'm an overweight transsexual man. I'm also a sculptor. I'm a very private and shy person. But yesterday I went to the Castro district of SF and stood at the place where the Trump statue was glued to the sidewalk. I'm going back again today. Uh, This is a silent nude protest performance where I am rotating uh, through some signs I've made about how I love my body and who I am. I'm doing this as a response to the lack of compassion that's been shown for bodies like mine in the past few days. Uh, For example, small genitals, a small genitalia, small hands, fat, and the current narrative about equating physical features with the quality of a person. I'm responding to the artist and quote-unquote anarchist collective, giving anarchists a bad name, throughout time, uh, who have made the Trump statues and to the people who jeered at the physicality of the statue and equated their riled up disgust with the quality of Trump as a man and as a candidate for president. Trump's words and actions are enough reason not to support him as president, and his body shaming and this body shaming was completely unnecessary and a new low in our culture. The effect of body shaming ripples out beyond Mr. Trump and hurts everyone. I also think that the statue itself was very lazy as an art piece since it riled up uh, prejudices without any examination of them and did not consider the impact of the message. It was the status quo and more of the same, how boring, and not an exploration of something further at all. In fact, the reactions to the statue are similar to the bigotry displayed at Trump rallies. My protest is meant to counter the message of the statue's makers. It's an exploration of prejudice, and it's my personal response to it since I love my body and who I am. So thanks again to to Shane uh, Brody for doing this and for speaking out. Um, I know a lot of trans folks uh, felt the same way about the, the statue and how harmful it was and is. And so I think that's really great that uh, Shane was able to do this. So again, you can find this article and some uh, clips uh, at facebook.com slash weekly rev. If you scroll down a little bit, we have that. And um, and I'll just read a little bit more from what Shane said uh, at the end of the interview. Uh, he, he says, uh, thanks for telling people about my protest and performance piece. It was hard for me, but I felt like I had to do it. I'm so glad that people understand what I was trying to do. There are many people in the Castro district who are very supportive. They gave me hugs. They talked to me about what I was doing, and they went out of their way to help me out, including when I needed sunscreen and water. I forgot about that. And when the police were warning me, fucking police, God damn them, uh, they, they were warning me about a citation. I love my community. Okay, this goes on further. So Scott Wiener, who's a supervisor in the Castro, who passed an anti-nudity law. There are photos of him with the, with the fucking Trump statue. 
so that somehow that's okay. Who's also he's also been very like anti-homeless, and of course there's a large proportion of homeless folks who happen to be transgender. So the fact that he's like, oh, it's okay to have like a naked statue to make fun of, um, but we can't have actual naked people. We can't have actual trans people out here. And the fact that the police would give him a citation somehow, oh, makes me livid. It makes me really, really livid. Yesterday I was walking down Castro, and there were two cops. Later three, um, and there was a, a woman on the sidewalk who was just sitting there, wasn't harming anybody. And they were like gonna write her a citation, and I did some cop watching. I was with a friend, and we're just they're watching, and it was thankfully they left her alone. But it was just like, do you need three cops? First of all, what are you doing? This person's not harming anybody. It was just so like the fact that, and also to have like three male, co- you know, like three big dude cops, and like this one woman who's just sitting there on the sidewalk. She's just sitting there. She's not doing anything. And they come up and start, you know, kind of threatening and like. And again, there's this empty fucking cop car in the middle of the street, and I get so, I don't do anything about it, but it's like, oh. You know, it's like when someone tells you not to eat a cake. And I'm not, I don't like cars, I don't like driving. It's what it represents, really. It's like this kind of taken up space is an abuse of power. The idea that they are protecting and serving when they're doing the opposite. The idea that our taxpayer, tax, our tax dollars are going to this, you know, to these people who, I, it, it makes me really upset. The positive thing is that they end up leaving her alone. They didn't write her a ticket. They didn't arrest her. So that was good. And again, a positive thing happened because there was no violence. There was some, I guess, I think there was violence, though. There's not physical violence, but there is that kind of emotional violence when authorities kind of come in and invade your space and, like, question you. So there was violence. And thankfully, she was not arrested. On that positive note, I'm going to play some music. We'll be back with uh, Charlie Toledo in a little bit. And um, one of the themes of the day, we're talking about how important water is, and that's, I realize that's kind of, that could mean a lot, because we all need water, and it's so silly that, you know, we're in a drought, and there's not as much attention paid on, you know, water conservation and and all this. But I feel uh, it's important to talk about it. So... I typed in water into my iTunes, very lazy uh, music searching, and so we're playing music with uh, water in the title. And this is from Monica McIntyre called Trouble This Water. Trouble this water 
waiting, waiting, waiting. Trouble this water. Can you help me give myself love this water? with uh, Charlie Toledo. Hi, Charlie. Hi, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks so much for calling in. Oh, yes, I'm glad to do it. Thank you for asking me. Sure. So we met when you were a guest on Global Val's program, uh, Women's Magazine, uh, about a month ago, a little bit more. And so I was hoping you could speak a little bit about the Seskol uh, Intertribal Council. Yes, that'd be great. Um, I'm the director of Seskol Intertribal. It was founded in, actually, it originated in 1972, Mm. which for, in Indian country, that was a really dangerous time, because that was, if you remember, that was around the time Alcatraz was taken over there in San Francisco, and um, Native people were sort of waking up from the horrible things that had occurred, especially here in California. And so what was happening locally in Napa at that same time, around 1972, was that a village site was being uh, overturned, you know, to put a freeway in. Ugh. 
And so the elder, Jim Big Bear King, who founded Susco Council, he went down and stood in front of the tractors and said, you're going to have to shoot me if you want to keep going here. Wow. And so that was, you know, the early 70s was a really difficult time. It was much, I know people think that there's so much violence from the police and stuff now, but back then it was really bad. It was much, much worse. Um, so they did stop construction of that overpass for three years. Wow. And Governor Brown and his... Uh, former incarnation as a groovy governor, uh-huh. he actually uh, worked, and that was the first time Native Americans worked collectively since the 1800s when all the mass murders and all that stuff occurred here in California, and uh, they created the Native American Heritage Commission, which oversees uh, grave sites and village sites and, you know, just heritage, all the different archives, but mostly uh, human remains. And so when any of those are found around construction sites, they develop protocols about what to do around archaeological sites, which at that point uh, California didn't have. And and California was the first state in the United States to develop that, um, those protocols. And that was in 1972 because of Suskel Intertribal Council. And Suskel was the name of that village site that was being overturned, you know, was being dug up. Mm -hmm. It's the largest village site, one of the largest inhabited areas, uh, in this region, it was thought to be probably about 3,000 people, you know, just there at the base of the Napa River, the southern part of Napa County. Wow. Just before it crosses in into Solano County. So that was where Susco got its name. It was a Patvin village named Susco. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the organization took the name of the village that it was defending, I or see. the remains of the village. and. Uh, Jim Big Bear was really in the forefront of all of that activity. He was a Crow elder, but his family had come to California pre the European invasion of this region. Mm -hmm. So through him, we have the oral traditions of how that transition occurred and how violent it was and all that. His family uh, had, had, you know, voluntarily migrated down into this region, and he said that they, they went over to San Francisco after settling in Napa for a while. They stayed in San Francisco for a little bit, but it was too damp there for them, so they came back and settled in Napa, and then were here during all the transitional time that occurred, you know, that really violent time at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s in California, Yeah, where people were just being mass murdered, and then the survivors of those uh, really attempted genocides were rounded up and, and moved, and his family got moved over to the Sierra foothills. Mm. And then at one point when he was, uh, when his fam- his mother and the, her brothers were able to, they moved back to Napa just voluntarily. They did a voluntary migration back. Um, unfortunately, until the, um, it was actually in the 1970s when California people, because most people don't know this, but the tribes that were rounded up and relocated, which was every tribe in California went through that experience, they to leave the reservation, they would be killed mm. up until about 1950, 1960 in wow. there. So 1970 was still a really volatile and dangerous time to be Indian in, in California. Yes. So by starting the organization, he was just, he said, you know, if somebody didn't point a gun and threaten to shoot him at least once a week, he felt like he wasn't doing enough. Wow. And that's in the early 70s, and most people don't realize all that stuff, because that you know, if it's not you, if you're not on that side of the gun, right. you know, it, it just it was not, of course, being picked up by any media sources. Right. But that's how Susco got its start. And then uh, Jim Big Bear, unfortunately, became ill. And so uh, he, they decommissioned the organization. And then about 10 years later, in 1992, 
I came along and was wanting to reactivate and was being asked by elders that were out of the region to to reactivate a Native American organization that could address the archaeological issues here in Napa. Because after um, the first Suskel, it was called at that time Suskel Indian Council, that when they decommissioned, uh, there was nobody then locally addressing the archaeological issues. And Napa County, Napa Valley, the Napa River, is one of the oldest inhabited places in North America. And it was inhabited by a large population of Native people, over 40,000 people, who lived in permanent villages. So this area, but just like San Francisco and, you know, Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, uh, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, all those places had huge Native populations, um, which unfortunately were nearly decimated in in the mid to late 1800s. And then, you know, all of those relocations and stuff were still going on as late as the 1930s, forced relocations. Yes, yes. And the adoption, the routine adoption of Indian babies away from their families mm-hmm. was, was still happening um, as a routine procedure in, in the 1970s. Wow. And one of my friends who was a midwife, because I, I was a midwife for the, when it was illegal, I've always been on the illegal side of things. But yes. Uh, Yes. That was in the early 1980s. It was still illegal. Three felony offenses to assist a woman to deliver a baby at home in, uh, in oh, California. Geez. And one of my friends, uh, who was a, she became a certified midwife when it became legal. At one point, she relocated and went up to uh, Alaska. Mm-hmm. And in Alaska, they were still doing that as late as the 1988. Uh, if a woman, a Native woman, came into the hospital and was routinely drug tested any drugs at all of any kind in her blood system the baby the newborn was immediately removed from the mother and transported down here to the california to be put up for adoption Uh. and that was still routine procedure in alaska in the late 1980s it's horrible so she as a midwife then started documenting that and and worked to change that yeah and that was going on routinely in california um up in the 1970s, and that's why the native population overtook Alcatraz because they were trying to get national and international attention to what was occurring in the United States against the indigenous population. Yes. That was kind of the first, uh, what we say, how it's described as a flare that went up to the world to announce Mm -hmm. that indigenous people were still alive. Yes, yes. Because a lot of people in outside of the United States And still to this day, it's still a prevalent problem that people talk about Native Americans in the past tense. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to find any current publications that refer to Native Americans in a present tense sense or uh, refer to the the villages, the permanent villages that they lived in. They always refer to their camps. Yes. They were camping. (laughs) Yeah. Which, you know, here in Napa, there's archaeological proof that uh, the indigenous population was here for over 60,000 years. Wow. Wow. So. Yeah, it's always interesting to see how things are taught or not taught and what's, I mean, the the brainwashing that happens in schools, even with the best of intentions, the just how history, there's a, such a skewed perspective that's passed on to generations and then people don't actual, actually question what they're taught. Right. Uh, Governor Brown is actually right now looking at a bill to make it a mandatory they passed those laws before that it's supposed to be part of the curriculum, but for whatever reason it was never implemented. Mm-hmm. That the story that I'm telling you, a, a fraction of that story, because of course every county, every town, in every part of California has a similar story. Yes. What happened happened everywhere yes. in California. All of the tribes, over the 300 tribes 
pre-European invasion was um, they were there was over 300 tribes in California, so every part of California was inhabited, mm-hmm. and that's just not uh, still still not told. Right. And when I started, when I reorganized the uh, Susco Council in 1992, which wasn't that long ago to me, of course, but now to your age group, it's a long time ago. But 1992, um, I still had a lot of death threats and um, had to deal with a lot of police harassment, uh, phones being tapped, mm-hmm. helicopters following me around when I was doing different things. Um, that was uh, that went on for almost seven years. Yeah. Uh, could you talk more about that? Well, it's a little hard to talk yeah. about, but yeah, you know, and, and during the time I talked about it a little bit, but yeah. most people think that you're crazy, you know, and yeah. that you need to have your meds and stuff, and even my native friends, sometimes I was talking about those things that would occur, and this one friend of mine said, you know, is it time for your meds? And I said, uh, yeah, it is. But um, in that same situation, I was I was on the board of trustees at DQU, mm-hmm. which is uh, a native American university in California, unfortunately, they lost their accreditation, but the time that I was on the board, it was very, uh, it was being very successful and was at the, you know, the rate of improving and meeting meeting its goals. And that was an outgrowth of the Alcatraz takeover when the tribes, uh, the tribal people, took over that island. They were they held it for 15 months, and then uh, there were two other land places because there's laws on the books that say any unused federal land mm-hmm. that landless tribes can reclaim their usage mm-hmm. and so that was Alcatraz was federal prison so that's that was that loophole that made the natives actually have a legal um, permission to do that yes but because that was so unpopular and, and of course they were that was they were very threatened that's a really long story unto itself uh, that is being told and documented now in San Francisco but what happened is the group split up into two groups and they took over a land base in northern, um, north of Santa Rosa called now Yakima. And the other land base they went and took over was at DQ, which is uh, just outside of Winters, between kind of the town of Winters and west of UC, you know, of Davis. Mm-hmm. And that was a 600-acre parcel. So anyway, I was part of that. I wasn't part of that. I was still, like, in my early 20s at that time. But uh, I did become part of the Board of Trustees in about, I think that was about 1997, and at that time, that harassment that I'm talking about was yeah. very overt. You know, yes. the phones. So I just I could go on and on and talk for a really long time about the what was daily routine out there as far as harassment and kind uh. of overt sabotage. But once we were trying to elect a new president, and when I came from Napa to Davis, which was about a 50-minute drive, I got there a little late. Yeah. And there was a, a AT&T or whatever it would have been called at that time. Uh, the phone company van and then I went in and they were everybody was just sitting there and we were going to do these phone interviews that we had set up around the United States for a potential next you know college president and I said what are you guys doing and they said oh the phones are down and I said oh did you call the phone repair guy and then my friend looked at me and said no the phones are down we can't make calls and that was before cell phones and I said there's a phone truck out there yeah and she said well I don't know why they're there and I said well let me go find out so I went back out there and I started asking the guy questions he got very jumpy and he said, well, I'm fixing the phone. I said, but the phones are broken. Did you disconnect them? He goes, oh, no, I'm not here at the administration building. But hmm. that's where he was parked. He said, I'm over there at the dorms. And I said, well, who called you if the phones are broken? Yeah. And and then somebody came and distracted me and, and didn't want me to continue that conversation, insisted I come back in the building. And when I went back out, which I just cut the conversation short, went back outside, but the phone truck then was gone. 
And so I went back to our meeting, and I said, well, we set this up. It's taken months to set up. We need to just leave. Let's just go to another phone somewhere and make these phone calls. If we have to go to a pay phone and stand around outside, we'll do that. But then one of the board members lived in Davis, so he said, no, we can go to my house. Yeah. And he didn't have a speakerphone, but I said, we'll take the speakerphone here. So we loaded up the speakerphone. We loaded up all our applications and interview materials, and there was about five of us. We took the secretary from the meeting and I, I said you're coming with us you know because we needed somebody to be taking notes and stuff so we just all went and got in our cars and kind of caravaned and at that time when we went out to the parking lot which that was all about 20 minutes after i got there mm-hmm. so the room was obviously bugged because with when we went out to the car there were two white helicopters circling the parking lot and then as we loaded in the car and went down this long country road uh Highway 31 into Davis, they, they just followed alongside of us the whole way in there. And we got to the address that we were going to. They circled around us and were tilting. And I was saying oh. to my friend, this is the same friend who had been joking about me needing my meds yeah. know, a few months earlier. Yeah. And I said, oh, I must must be time for my meds. I, I'm hallucinating these white helicopters that have followed us the whole way from DQ. And now, look, they're tilting. That means they're taking pictures. And I was waving and looking up to the camera, just stopping and looking up the camera and waving. And she said, put your hand down get in the house (laughs) and she refused to talk about it um but she saw them i mean they were there and that kind of experience would occur i realized when i would talk on the phone about things if for any reason i was on my home phone talking about a date or location of some meeting and i realized what we were talking about then and this was probably mm, this would have been like uh 93 94 Mm -hmm. um 1994 um that a white helicopter would show up at the place sometimes follow me to the location or near the location and then if we were having a meeting outside they would be circling above us when we were doing like ceremony in my backyard in downtown napa Mm -hmm. uh, i i used to say all the time that we're the only ethnic group but if we're going to do religion if we're going to practice our religion we have to notify the police and the fire department in order to have uh, sweat lodges in my backyard we, I had to meet, I was meeting, it's a long story about what happened there with the police and the fire department and all that, but I just did all those meetings, I kept going, and then our agreement was that I would phone both of those departments to let them know that we were having a ceremony so that if any neighbors complained, they, would, they wouldn't send a fire engine out. Uh, but what they did send out a lot of times was a helicopter, and the helicopter would circle over when we were in ceremony or uh, when I was preparing to, you know, have the ceremony. And that pretty much happened, you know, I would say probably at least every other month for about two or three years. Jeez. And then at one point, and I think, you know, what I had figured out is it was about Native Americans becoming visible and Mm -hmm. finding their own voice. Yes. It was about Native Americans around land use issues and having access to land. And what we did as an organization, because what we had, why we had reformed was to create a safe place where we could practice our religion yes. and have ceremony. And so we did, as an organization, purchase 23 acres in Chops Po Valley in 1998, which everybody said, you can't do that. <laughs> I said, yeah, we can. Yeah. <laughs> and we did, you know, and we successfully did that. We paid it off and um, we got the land uh, tax-free because it's for the public good, preserving open space and culture, yeah. indigenous culture. And um, so that's been one of the main focuses of the organization for me personally, and that's what I'm still working on. You know, we, we've we developed it, and we're just, we just finally got building permits, which was a very expensive and took almost uh, three years to do. 
uh, but those permits were just finalized this last month, and so we're getting ready to, you know, build out a what we call the Fuscal House. And yes. what that's going to be is a prototype for how to kind of live on the land in a way that is non-invasive. Mm-hmm. The materials for the building are all sustainable. They're BAMCOR, this bamboo material. That, that's why the the accredited or the building permits took so long to get, because it's a, a newly patented uh, building material that's renewable and sustainable with three-year bamboo. It just looks like um, plywood, but it's actually made of bamboo. So all of the engineering tests, all of the uh, stability tests that have been done on the walls and stuff that it, it's fire resistant it's earthquake resistant and like i said it's a renewable sustainable building which grossly cuts down the use of trees in construction and will do that so what we wanted to do is develop a prototype of how to combine like modern contemporary uh methods with traditional methods Mm -hmm. you know the main thing is to have a place that we can do ceremony but also to have kind of a teaching prototype for other communities or other uh, just even individuals peoples or cities and so that's what we're doing and uh and most of that is done through uh facebook and social media and the internet you know we don't really have people because it's a a rural area that we don't want to impact with large numbers of people but when that house is done we will have it open you know two or three times a year for to the public for tours but the rest of the time it's pretty much we're going to be using it uh, as an organization for kind of a teaching prototype is what we call it yeah and then the other thing that i've been involved with that i was talking about uh the last time i was on your radio station Hmm? was uh working with human rights yes human rights issues yes yes and that's what Suskal has done, that we actually, in 1995, were in the International Beijing Conference for Women um, and signed, there was a thousand other indigenous communities from around the world that we signed a petition to the UN to create uh, some kind of permanent access for indigenous people, because until, the, and then that was accepted, it took almost five years to implement, and then another, you know, five years for that to get approved, and another five years for it to be implemented. So there are two permanent committees uh, set up for indigenous people to have a venue to file complaints and stuff. And that never existed before mm. the year 2000. Wow. That's relatively recent. And that's why now, as indigenous people globally, but especially here in the United States, I was part of the group that filed a human rights complaint in 1995 with the UN. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time a human rights complaint had ever been filed against the United States. Wow. I know. <sighs> And that was, um, that started what we are now, which now there's all kinds of human rights complaints get filed almost monthly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mostly from the indigenous community, what's happening out in the Dakota with that trans pipeline. Yes, uh, yes. The, the Amnesty International's out there observing. They filed complaints immediately with the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And that's all stuff that nobody was even thinking about doing uh, way back in the 90s and so now it's become the norm which which for me is is you know it's a very exciting time and i'm glad to have been a part of that that movement yes 
and so I still mostly I I don't have a real interest in being in big cities like New York City, yeah, going yeah. to the United Nations or Geneva. But fortunately, people in the group that I'm a part of, Women's Intercultural Network, which uh, mm-hmm. has consultative status with the UN and is a partner group, we have consultative status through them. We can file complaints and reports with the UN really year round. But uh, at least once a year, there's a week that's focused on indigenous uh, people's issues globally. Okay. And that's turning into a bigger and bigger and bigger event. Yes. Hopefully, the intention has always been for indigenous people to have a permanent seat on the floor in the UN. Right, right. Which it's amazing that they don't, that they've never had that. Yeah. And that, to me, is a real tragedy, that the Vatican, which is really not a country, but it's a city, Mm -hmm. they have two votes on the floor. They have. And then the, the oh. 80% of the population of the world, the indigenous people, have no voice and have not had a voice. Really, it was more around, it was around uh, 2005 that that started to, and then in, Native people didn't really get it, especially in the United States. People mm-hmm. didn't understand that interaction, but in the last five years, they do understand it. And so tribes from California, uh, tribes from all over the United States are going and filing complaints and having annual uh, convenings and meetings and a really strong presence in all of the UN conferences that occur around the world. So you, you mentioned the Women's uh, Intercultural Group? Sorry, I can, sorry. your voice is really low. Oh, sorry, you mentioned the, the Women's Intercultural Group yes. earlier? Can you, I haven't uh, heard of them. Can you speak a little bit it's more about the, the work the they Women's do? Intercultural Network, and it was network. based there in San Francisco mm-hmm. on um, Hay Street in the Hay Ashbury District, mm-hmm. but the director, just because of the housing situation in San Francisco where the rents are going so high, yeah. she recently just, she couldn't find affordable housing. Oh. 83-year-old woman who's lived there for 32 years Jeez. in the same house. She thought it was rent-controlled, but I guess uh, they're finding loopholes in that rent-controlled oh. thing. Um, oh. So she moved down to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So now we have a, what, what call, we're calling an auxiliary office in San Francisco, and the main office is moved down to L.A., mm-hmm. and, and tomorrow, actually, is the first time that we're doing, uh, you know, two parts of Cali- L.A. and San Francisco. We're having a statewide conference in two locations. Okay. And that's the first, so it's been really hectic for me, because for some reason, I ended up getting the opportunity to organize the San Francisco convening. And what we do at these annual convenings is we try to get people from all over the state to come and re- report, make reports. We we create paper uh, reports that we about our counties about how what progress is being made about human rights issues around women and children, mm-hmm. and what the blocks are and what our recommendations are at the state level. And then that gets filed with the UN annually at the week that is spent on human rights, the Commission on Status of Women does an annual convening at the UN in New York City um, focusing on women and children. And that's, you know, it's the UN, so it's global, so people, women mostly, but they're men there too, come from around the world for that week and make reports. And I think most people don't realize how the UN works. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a passive, mostly a passive organization. Mm -hmm. And the work of the human rights is on the burden of the NGOs, what are called NGOs, non-governmental organizations. So WIN, Women's Intercultural Network, is a UN-certified NGO, which means that gives them access to the UN to go to those weekly, you know, annual convenings. And every week of every year, there is a convening on something, the environment, water, you know, they just have the topics. Basically, once a year, they go to look at them. 
and the NGOs have the work of documenting in their regions what the successes are, what the problems are, what the blocks are, and what the recommendations are. And that happens once a year for all the different topics. What would that make? 56 different topics that get focused on ears. Oh, wow. And so how, what the theory behind that is if somebody's watching it and measuring it and talking about it, that that's how it begins to change. And how it used to work was that if you had a UN, you know, a, a human rights complaint filed at the UN, that would embarrass the government mm-hmm. in order to make the changes. Yes. Unfortunately, now people are, don't seem to get as embarrassed as they used to. So. Yeah. But it yeah. still helps because, and, and, and I used to think, I thought that's all they do. And, and that puts the burden on the NGOs, on mm-hmm. the organizations that are on the ground. And then many times, like what I was doing, what was happening to me in Napa, that I, the situation I described in the you know, early to late 90s and as late as the 2000s, I, I contacted the Amnesty International because if the work that you're doing in the region where you live becomes dangerous to your life, mm-hmm. then you call in an international uh, observers okay. who come and they observe and they watch what's going on. And that actually provides protection. Okay. And that protection is global. But, but Amnesty International couldn't come at the time I was asking, and they said they assessed that the work I was doing was too dangerous. Hmm. And the recommendation they made was that I stop the work until they could wow. send an international observer in. Wow. Which I didn't do that. I yeah. just kept going. Yeah. And part of why you want international observers, whether you're in Zimbabwe or, you know, East Africa, you know, Uganda, Rwanda, places like that. The reason you want those observers is that that actually offers protection Mm -hmm. for your life. Sometimes it doesn't, and then sometimes the observers are killed, but mostly they're not killed. And that offers a a source of protection. And so once you have the international eyes on the situation, that actually creates a body of protection. So those people out in the Dakotas, that protest is just growing and growing. Yes. So when Amnesty International comes there, and it's duly noted, you notice that the media is not talking about that. Yep, yes, yeah. So it's only the social media and our own resources, which back in the 70s and 80s, of course, we didn't have that. We were just kind of on our own, in our own guts, you know, to keep, keep going. But now with the with the social media, it doesn't matter if the media is not covering it. Mm-hmm. You know, screw them. There's there is international attention. It's being documented. The fact that Amnesty International is out there so quickly, and then there's over 30 tribes across the United States that have signed and supported the action. Yes. And there's representatives from those tribes. So I think the last time I checked, there's over 4,000 people out there. Oh wow. And that's growing. That's wonderful. Uh, so at some point, the, the media will have to notice it. Right, <laughs> right. But it doesn't matter because we have the international media. And, and the, those tribes, those groups of tribes, have actually filed a complaint. And they are suing that company that's putting in that line yes. for loss and threat to danger and health. And those are all human rights issues. Right. Most people don't realize, and that's what I was going to say um, at my presentation tomorrow, because tomorrow at that City for Seed, I'll kick off in San Francisco, I'll be making a, a just a really brief report. Um, but, you know, just trying to teach people, as we've always spent, and I've spent my whole life doing this, educating people about what, what we can do to make the world a better place to be. Mm-hmm. And that people don't realize, they always think that um, 
human rights has something to do with torture and has something to do, but it's over there somewhere. Yes, yes. And what WIN and the UN and all these different organizations have been doing really, I don't know, I think I've been working on this uh, since probably 1980. Um, but... Um, that if you don't have access to education, if you don't have access to health care, to clean water, to clean air, if you're not safe in your home, mm -hmm. if you're not safe on the streets that you live in, yes. if you don't have access to economic equity or yes. accurate media, those are human rights violations. Yes, absolutely. And so by documenting them and filing complaints about them annually with the UN, that starts to create change. Mm. And it's like turning some big giant boat. It's like trying to turn the Titanic or something. Yeah. It just turns really slow, and most people don't have the patience for this kind of work. Right. Because we call it policy work, that you actually are changing the laws and policy mm -hmm. so that real change can occur. But no matter how many international treaties are made for the protection of you know, human rights for women and children or protection of indigenous people, unless you're actually safe right where you live, yes. in your own home and in your street, you, your human rights are being violated. Yes. And so that's what we, as, as, a, as Women's Intercultural Network, and this huge campaign that we're starting that is sanctioned by the UN, it's called Cities for CEDAW. Mm -hmm. And CEDAW was a, a treaty that was signed, I think it was 1986, I was trying to get that information, but it was a while, about 20 or 30 years ago. And that was Convention on Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Mm. And the U.S. was one of the only countries that did not sign that treaty. And that does not uh, surprise me in the least. I know. And then Ugh. in 1995, that, that huge treaty, that conference that we went to in Beijing, there was another treaty that came out of that reinforcing the CEDAW, mm -hmm. saying we still need this to be uh, signed. And then when um, we started this Cities for CEDAW campaign, and that was going to be a national campaign that was sanctioned by the U.N., because we're still just trying to put pressure on the United States government to sign that treaty. Mm -hmm. But they, they are resisting it, you know, whatever. It's been all this long time. Uh. Now it seems like it's been 40 years. And I've watched a lot of women who've been working on this since the 80s and the 60s. That they, they're, Most of them are, are dead, you know. But like my friend who just left San Francisco, she's 83. So she has gone to every women's conference. She has devoted her life to this work. Mm -hmm. And then there's, uh, you know, but and then we, what we really need is this next generation of 20, 30-somethings to wake up and, and, and work with us. And that's where this strategy for cities for CEDAW, that cities just at the city level, which mm -hmm. San Francisco is the first city, like I said, to yeah. sign that treaty. And everybody said, you know, a city can't sign an international treaty. But Willie Brown did, hmm. and so then, and then he put money behind it. So the Commission on the Status of Women actually is implementing the CEDAW Treaty in San Francisco and has been for 10 years. Well, it turned out because we're starting the Cities for CEDAW, this national campaign, for the first time ever, the United States got representation. Is this too complicated? Oh no, no, please go okay. ahead. Because yeah. I start going at it, and it's like oh, no, I love it. Language. It's great. Uh, I'm trying to talk slow, but so for the first time ever, this last January, 2016. Uh, a U.S. could be represented at the CEDAW convening that was in Geneva, hmm. and they convene annually. Well, because of this, and so, you know, Maryland was just so delighted to be there, and it was the first time anybody from the United States had participated, and she was talking about what we were doing with the cities for CEDAW campaign. And all these representatives from all those countries of the world, even though they had signed the treaty back in the 1980s, none of them have implemented it. So this is this campaign Jeez. is gone international, yeah. and it's the implementation yes. 
of human rights for mm-hmm. women and children, or the protection of human rights for women and children. And I always just ask the question, isn't it amazing that the world has such a resistance to protecting the health and safety of women and children? Yep. That still here we are in 2016, we're so, you know, developed and modern, and, and that we refuse collectively as a species yes. to protect women and children. Yes. It's it's disgusting. It's and amazing. It's, to me, I don't get disgusted because if I was yeah. disgusted, I couldn't do the work. Yeah. I just always get amazed. Yes, yes. And I always think, wow. You know, I can understand indigenous people because they wanted to come and kill everybody and steal everything, and they don't want that story to be told. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to look really hard at how I was endangering myself and my children, and I had young children. I was living as, as a single woman. Mm-hmm. How we were being endangered... But I just thought, you know, if I can't protect my babies yeah. and myself where I'm living, wh- what else What else am I doing? You know, that yeah. I just felt like I, I can do this. I'm going to take these risks. Yes. And I did, and I have. And I still, unfortunately, my children have grown into young adult women and have children of their own. But unfortunately, this still isn't, isn't implemented. So I think right now we're at a very exciting time mm-hmm. because... All of this stuff, I always think of the policy, and believe me, boy, back in the 60s and 70s, I was not a policy person. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I think people get really excited about um, demonstrations and actions because that's fun. Mm -hmm. You get in the street, you can yell around, you can be with all your friends. Mm -hmm. But then you kind of go home and you start doing your other thing, whereas policy stuff, you just got to slog through, you've got to brainstorm. And we've been collectively, WIN and Susquehanna Intertribal Council and all of these organizations have collectively been brainstorming since the 1980s, how can we get this stuff implemented? Yes. So I feel like right now, this weekend, that we are the closest to implementation that we've ever been in my life. Oh, wonderful. Because the city's Tercidoff campaign has just gone international. It's just like an international thing. And, and, it's a, and San Francisco is the point of that. Mm-hmm. Because of Willie Brown, San Francisco has 10 years' experience in implementing human rights protections for women and children in the city of San Francisco. Mm. So they are the lead model for the other cities of the world to follow. And I just am very excited about that. Yeah. So you can tell how old I am because I get excited about stuff like that. You know, it's just... But for me, it's exciting. And I feel just... Like I said, I felt amazed that this has taken so long. I yes. had no idea any of this would take. I thought, you know, we'd buy the land, we'd build the house, there wouldn't be the amount of resistance. Yes. But when you're trying to do things like, you know, purchase land and build a house, and you have the police and the army and the CIA and all these other people kind of tracking you down. Yes, and yes. And doing weird stuff with your phone and your car and yeah. your airplane or whatever, it makes it a little more difficult. Of course. And then it's difficult to have people to help. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so that's why mostly I never talk about this stuff. Sure. So this is, I think this it's is the first time in sort of a, any kind of public forum that I'm sort of saying, okay. Oh, right on. Well, I think it's so inspiring to hear, and also just thinking about like intersectionality and how many other groups have been targeted by law enforcement um, or by the government, and well, think yeah, about like those whole the Black, Black Panthers. Woman, I mean, yeah. People of color, you know, and I think that's where people say, oh, this is starting, you know, the police are starting to be so bad. I'm, oh, no, no, They've the always police been. have always been bad. Yes. What's different now is it's being documented. Yes. And that brings us back to that documentation and that witness, you know, that sincere witness. Mm-hmm. That, that's really the only way change can occur. Yes. If somebody is watching it 
and documenting it and filing that documentation in some agency outside of their own hometown. Mm. And that's what's given me protection. But, you know, there have been many times in my life, and that's even when my kids were really, actually even when I was having my kids at home, yes. which was in the 19, my daughters were born in 1976, 1978, here in Napa. Mm-hmm. And at that time it was three felony offenses, and no doctor would help or assist in a home birth delivery. And they were saying to me, and it's hard when you're pregnant, you know, because you're very vulnerable. Sure. And you've got all those hormones raging, so your level of vulnerability or survival is way over the top. And they were telling me right to my face, these medical doctors, well, what, are you going to be able to look in the mirror when your baby dies? Uh, and I'm just kind of like, <laughs> but I just looked in the mirror, you know. I used to look in the mirror every morning when I was pregnant, my first pregnancy. I thought, can I look in the mirror? I thought, I will look in the mirror. I'll continue to look in the mirror if whatever happens. I think this is, I was making the best, best health care choice for myself and my baby. Yeah. And I did, and I'm glad I, I did that. And, and I think that, you know, people all over the world, you know, unfortunately all this stuff that's happening in El Salvador with the indigenous people, how these, all these indigenous leaders are being killed. Mm-hmm. But what's different, they've always been killing indigenous leaders, you know, in, in the Americas and actually globally, but we just never heard about it. Yes. Whereas Berta Caceres, when she was killed yes. uh, a few months ago, which was a tragic event, yeah. I didn't realize till later when I looked, when I was posting it on Facebook seven hours after she was killed. Mm. It went international and and viral within three days. Yes. And then the bank, the Dutch bank that was investing in those water dams and stuff, Mm -hmm. they pulled out of their investment when they found out that the people on the ground in Central America were killing indigenous people to Mm. get this this dam, this project put through. Mm. And that kind of stuff... That would never have happened even a year ago. Yes. Oh, wow. You know, those people would have been killed. It would have been pushed under the rank. Anybody trying to talk about it would have been killed. Yes. Um, And and that just isn't, you know, now what's happening is, you know, it's like the world's watching. Yes. And so I feel like we're, again, like I said before, we're at a very exciting time of change, and it's a really important time, I think, for each one of us as a human being to say, what can I do? Where can I stand? Right, right. That I will further this incredible evolution of, of the human species. Yes. You know, for us to be compassionate and sharing, which I think is our true destiny. I, I believe. That really, as people, most of us want to have fun. We want to be able to dance and party and be safe in our homes and have our children grow healthy and have freedom of choice to be and do what they want to do. Absolutely. And then have that mobility to move around freely. And I really feel like we're really on the brink of that transition. Yes. So I'm, I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, it's inspiring to hear too, because I feel like it's, it can be very easy to get bogged down in it or to feel pessimistic or cynical, Mm -hmm. um, especially recognizing how much how many folks have given up their lives just oh, yeah. so ever you know we all can live in peace and then also so the earth can exist and can be no longer damaged and it's i think at times it feels like i know from a lot of talking to a lot of activists that it feels very easy to get burned out so recognizing the that people have put so much time and energy into it and seeing the the victories of any scale can be very encouraging yeah, I think the, we, we really have to look at the cumulative victories. Yes. And I think for me, because people had said that to me, now they don't say it, because after you reach a certain age, people just leave you alone as far as telling you what to do or how to do it. Mm-hmm. But people used to say, how can you do that? Yes. Or what sustains you? And I feel like, you know, when you do have that higher vision, 
or that larger scope yes that you just realize okay i'm just going to be here for the duration and i'm going to do what it takes but part of what i do and i've always done is rest mm. and i think that's what a lot of people they get so fired up and they you know a lot of people i call them when they wake up you know when their eyes open and they realize what's going on around them they get very frenetic yes yeah and they just kind of go at this frenetic pace and then they start evangelizing to everybody, and then they just burn out. You know, yep. they're, they're usually burned out within, I'd say, about three years. Mm. But if you just go, okay, you know, this is something that needs to happen, and we're going to work on this until it's done. And, yes. and not even, you know, I started realizing probably in my 50s that it might not happen in my lifetime. Yes. Oh, yeah. And once I realized that, you just take a steadier pace. Right, right. And I had the good fortune, you know, within the Native culture, uh, we have elders. Mm-hmm. And Jim Big Bear Crow, he was my mentor for 15 years. And I always have just been so grateful to have him as a mentor. You know, he just really, st- he's six foot four, he's a big giant crow guy with hair down to his waist mm-hmm. and two long braids. And he just stood beside me and behind me in so many really frightening times, you know. Yes. And he would just always encourage me and say, oh, you know, back in the 60s, or oh, well, when we were back at DQ, or when we were trying to take those canoes out to Alcatraz, you know, we had to paddle in the night with all this food and water, and, you know, just that incredible resilience. Yes. And when you have that as a role model, Mm -hmm. and then 15 years is really a long time to have a mentor, unfortunately, passed away, but, um, Mm. you know, I realized that that gave me a really solid backing. Yes. In that pacing, and then what you see, and that's what somebody had just said to me last night, we were exchanging because it's a woman i've known for 30 years but we didn't know what the she didn't know the work i was doing i didn't know the work she was doing because a lot of times in the indian world there's a lot of chaos and so we get very busy and she's somebody i've known on the powwow circuit but it was just last night that we even found out like i found out what she's been doing in sacramento at state levels for indigenous people and she found out what i've been doing at international and she said wow it's funny that our paths crossed and i said well you know we've known each other we just never had the opportunity to talk Mm-hmm. And so, but she just said, where she she said, we have to be so grateful for all the work of all the people before us did. Yes, And I think as yes. indigenous people, I know that my grandparents had really hard decisions to make. You know, they they, they could stay on the reservation or they could be killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they And then if they snuck off or got off the reservation, there was reasons why they would pretend they weren't Indians because mm-hmm. they didn't want to be killed. And then, you know, my parents had to make the... So I've always been really clear of the decisions and the sacrifice that my ancestors made so that I could be alive. Yes, yes. And I think when you look at it in that longer scope, you you get you get that more uh, pace. You know, you set a pace. You're not trying to... There's not a timeline. Yes. And I think that's when people get burnt out because they someplace in their mind, they've got that this is going to be done in two years. Someplace they're thinking that. Mm-hmm. And without that, if you take that time limit off your brain cap, it gives you that resistance, you know, that resiliency. Yes. Because then you realize, oh, well, I need to go get dinner, and I need to take a nap, and oh, I need to go down to the ocean for a week, or I'm going to take a vacation. Yeah. You know, you don't have that frenetic thing. Right. And so then it's more of a pacing. But also, as indigenous people, we have ceremony. Mm -hmm. So we do ceremony. And through ceremony, we really connect at very visceral levels to the ancestors you know, to the past and the future. Mm. And I think that gives us that real deep sense of hope. Yes. That I don't see a lot of times in other, you know, non-Native people. Yes. They seem to fall into hopelessness really, really quickly. Yes. 
And I think also with just the current generation, and I can only speak for myself, but there is that with social media it does bring that kind of instant gratification yes. and that lack of, I mean, I, I'm, I'll, I'll be 36 soon. Um, so I do remember what it was like before the internet. And I do remember what it was like to write letters to people and to wait for things. Right. And I feel the, you know, the current generation that's coming up, there will be less of that because the mm-hmm. information and so much else is available at the tip of one's fingertips at any time. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, you can find out the price of any business or house for sale on any blockage that you're standing in. You can just tiny, type in Chinese, and you have five options of Chinese food within three blocks radius. I mean, that all to me is still totally amazing. Yeah. But I see that in my grandchildren, that they're just used to touching. And that's where I'll say to older people my age, you know, if they see the little kids going, and they'll come to any glossy surface, and they just run their finger along it. And I said, you know what they're doing? And they go, what? I said, they're seeing if they can open it. Mm. And I was seeing my grandchildren do that as toddlers. Mm. They would just come up to a glossy surface on a table or a screen, and they just touch it. They just drag their finger across it. Wow. Or tap it, you know, because they're used to just that, that quick. Yes, yeah. And then, you know, with the handhelds and the iPads, it's just like, oh, my God, that it is really instant. But, you know, who knows? Because when we look at the Olympics, and my sister had done that, when we look at the Olympics back in the 1950s, what people, how they were competing, mm-hmm. it looks like they were moving in slow motion compared yes. to what people, the human body can do now. Yes, yeah, that's very true. And so I feel like it really is this cumulative evolutionary process that we're in. Mm-hmm. And that somehow, even though it seems like it's instant gratification, somehow something is going to come from that that will just push us into another. You know, I really feel, and I've always felt this my entire life, that, that our nature as human beings is to be telepathic, is to be able to teleport. Mm. And I have, and I have experience again through the indigenous population of people that can do that. They can shape shift. They can um, teleport. Uh, at least their consciousness. And so I always thought, and I still think that that's something that's going to happen in my lifetime. And one of my elders had said that to me, that, you know, that what we're using the machines to do, mm-hmm. it's what is our human capacity to do. Mm-hmm. And that we'll remember how to do that. Those are things that we forgot. Mm. And I could get into whole cosmology on that one. <laughs> I don't know what kind of time yeah. frame we have. Oh, yeah, we've but got time. Are we still okay for time or we're running to the end? Oh, yeah, we've, we've got time. Because the cosmology, you know, of course, is that we, we came from the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sister, my older sister, who is a teacher and a school principal for 30 years, she's retired, so she's researching all of our DNA. She went and got DNA tests. And what she's coming up through just my, our family DNA, which I think any family who does this, it's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. But going back to Neanderthal times when she's getting up stories about our Basque heritage and our indigenous, and it's stuff that I knew intuitively, but she's mm. actually kind of doing the research and proving it. Yes, yes. Which is really exciting for me. I said that to one of my brothers. Oh, she's proving all this other stuff, I thought. And he goes, well, I don't think that's why she's doing it. And I said, well, no, of course not. But, I mean, because, you know, siblings were all competitive to each other. Yeah. Who knew it first? But what she's coming up with, and what I said to her, I said, that's fitting the cosmology, you know, that people came from the sky. Mm. And in the petroglyph drawings and stuff, they show people with little bubble heads and little umbilical cord floating down from the sky. Huh. And that the people with blue eyes came from the sky. And that's what sort of sped up. But that it, the reason we stopped getting those pathways to the star systems is because our solar system um, 
what is the word orbited or <coughs> migrated moved into what we call a dark corner mm. so the other the passage the the other suns that we would need to to make those leaps into the stars is where we've been separated from it oh for the last 5,000 years and the whole 2012 thing and the condor and the eagle and all those uh, stories of origin it's about us getting back realigned uh, as a as a solar system our planet and our sun with these other suns mm. that actually become this kind of like frog leap you know like if you had stepping stones across water or something y- yes yes that but if some of the stones were taken away you couldn't make the leap you couldn't leap across the waterway or the right right whatever and so we're actually coming back into into alignment with those um, those stones those stars those suns that help us as humans to go and teleport you know through through the stars oh wow and so i think you know again uh, that part of our evolution is that we, you know what what indigenous people say is we're not evolving we de-evolved and now we're mm. reclaiming our right place yes and as a species how we were meant to be and that we've we've sort we've been cut off and isolated and that we're coming back into and then part of that the norm just like with the the iphone that you can access all that information in instant mm-hmm. you know nobody needs to read or even retain information because you just google everything yeah yeah you know do coyotes attack humans i was at a <laughs> dinner what i'm arguing that coyotes can attack humans oh no somebody pulls out their iphone no no and that's only happened you know once every 20 years <laughs> 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 and so there's that instant knowledge but i think that that's that we're just in you know that we're only using 10 percent of our brain yes yes and so what's that and I was a meditation teacher for about 30 years, and that was one of my meditative cues, was, you know, scientists say we're only using 10% of the brain. What if we are using the whole brain? What is the other 90% of our brain doing? Yeah. Because I yeah. feel like we don't lose those links. We just lost awareness of it. Mm. And so now what's happening with all of the devices, it had this one teacher friend of mine told me that she, um, that as humans, as the whole species, um, we're just re-remembering our capacity. Huh. So that, again, is another exciting thing. Wow. <laughs> and she, you know, because some of the cultures still still shapeshift and all that. You know, yes. there's still a lot of indigenous people who still have that um, capacity. But it's not available anymore to the mass, uh, you know, to all of us. Mm-hmm. And that, that we did have access like that and that we will regain that access. Oh, yeah. So I think, again, that's another exciting time. So all of everything that happens, you know, I just think, well, that's, here we go. Yeah. And that's a really, I, I like that way of looking at it, too. Just, uh, t- yeah, just very open to it. Right. Right. That's all we right. can be. Well, yeah, just, you know, it's sort of that cliche of be all you can be. <laughs> I always have said that. And anytime you say that, even to a child, oh, we only use 10% of the brain, what's the other 90% doing? It always tricks, it's almost like tricking that switch open. Because mm-hmm. people do start to say, what, what am I doing? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And for me, I'm, I'm one of those people that has access to the other parts. Not, I wouldn't say 100%, but certainly compared to people's 10%, I probably have maybe 30%. Mm-hmm. That I'm aware of all the other kind of beyond the third dimension realities of what's possible. Yeah. And that's where words, which sound very sci-fi, teleportation and telepathy and, 
projection and, and uh, shape-shifting, all that stuff. But there are people, and there always have been people still living in the third dimension who have that capacity. Yes. And they still do, you know. There's just amazing stories that uh, are real, and, and those are stories that aren't being told. And then you kind of think, uh, to me, it's just like this, you know, dark lord or something. Ever you're going to look at it in Star, Star Wars analogies, uh, <coughs> that this dark energy or dense energy kind of covered the earth, and then it's up to us as individuals to, to free ourselves from that. Yes. And the way to do that, because what I understand, my understanding that I have of that, is that that stuff, that dense, it feeds on anger and fear. Mm-hmm. And you look at our current election, you know, think of how yes. much of that has been generated. Oh. But to me, I think it's tricking people yes. to being angry and afraid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, don't get tricked. Yes, yes. Stay calm. Yeah. And, and if we stay calm, that over thing, that density, has nothing to eat. Mm. And the only way that we can protect ourselves from it is to not feed it. Yes, yeah. And so that means living a life without fear and anger, which is really hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think a lot of the systems that are in place, as well as the media uh, and the institutions that we're may or may not be uh, were a part of kind of really contribute and thrive off that and i think capitalism kind of thrives off that the keeping people afraid of one another and keeping people in competition with one another yeah and isolated yes oh yeah so isolated from one another yes so that's why i love radio i mean and i resisted computers and i was at you know with when i was at so somebody told me one time and this was probably 20 years ago that he couldn't believe i stood in this group of professional women in oakland and said i will never get on a computer i am just going to wait until you guys get up to speed yeah and can be telepathic and she said i can't believe you said that but then i, I did get on a computer and i swore to god and everybody else i was never gonna get on facebook and here i am just you know i can hardly get off of it but because because it's our own media, mm-hmm. I feel like what Gutenberg said, you know, the press will only be free when everybody has a printing press. Mm. And I thought when we got our little computers and we could print stuff that that was our printing press, but really it's it's social media. Yeah. Because that is instantaneous. So that same instantaneous thing that can weaken us, it also can be our strength if we use it as a tool yes. to keep hope and, you know, joy and alive. Yeah. Rather than falling into fear and... Uh, anger yes so i think that that's you know it's it's uh and then it's more fun Mm -hmm. you know because i don't watch tv i don't listen to the radio very much so it's funny that i'm on the radio but (laughs) um and people say well how do you get information and and because i've been in this alternative uh universe really since uh the probably since about the mid 60s i think it was in 1965 i was in high school Mm -hmm. and i stopped watching tv Mm mm-hmm and you realize just to not watch TV, it puts you in an alternate space. Oh, yeah. It's like you live in an alternate universe. Yes. And even now when people ask me, well, did you see the program? And I say, well, I don't watch TV. Yes, yes. And then they'll say, oh, you don't watch TV. That's right. But did you see the, you know, they still want to talk about the <laughs> Yeah. <program. laughs> yeah. And it's like, and I just let them talk, you know. And most of my friends, <clears throat> I actually don't have that many friends anymore. No, I still have friends, but <clears throat> not, sorry. Not people that I talk to and visit on a regular basis. I mm-hmm. sort of get more, I'm more involved in activism, and so we're not talking about TV shows. And stuff yeah, and yeah. Even with the current election, people want to tell me stuff. I say, please don't tell me. It doesn't make me feel better to hear that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, then yeah. I say, oh, you know, and then on Facebook or Twitter or any of those things, if I see certain references, I would just hide them, hide them, hide them. And it finally, after hiding all those 
election things, I'm not hearing anything about the current, you know, campaign. Oh, nice. Be, and then I'm just hearing about the stuff in South Dakota, and they need supplies, and we're organizing a truck from here to take supplies Oh, yes, there and, yeah. You know, and then that stay focused on what we can do. Yes, yes. And then the cities for CDOT, you know, that this is an international campaign. We're going to try to get as every city in California is going to be part of my focus, mm-hmm. but then hopefully that all the other uh, cities will wake up and say, yeah, I want my city to be implementing this human rights protection for women and children. Yeah. Those are positive things that we can do. Or just having a garden and growing your own vegetables and flowers and, you know, spending time with hummingbirds and lizards and stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned that there's a truck heading out to, like, North and South Dakota. Um, I'll be talking a little bit more about, uh, later on in the program, about ways folks can support, but I hadn't heard about the truck, so do you mind sharing some of that information? You know, we're not putting it on public media, but you could okay. private message me on sure. Facebook, and sure. I can send you, because there's people from the Bay Area that are going to be out. I don't know if you knew there was just, I think it was yesterday. Oh, on Wednesday. Wednesday. Yes, I was a, there. There was a rally right there in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, it was great. In the Oakland Friendship House in mm-hmm. Oakland, mm-hmm. they actually have uh, vehicles and uh, things that they're, but we have one also from Napa, but I think they're in the Bay Area that there's going to be, I would try to get somebody from the Oakland Friendship House, because I think what's going to happen is people will just start sending trucks, because, you know, for those of us who've been in similar movements, we, we're hoping that it's going to be a long haul, and that the support there's going to grow. Yes. And then what they need is the support of right. materials, can, right. you know, food and tents and Water. tarps and toilet paper and whatever yeah. like that. Yeah. They actually posted a list of what they need. Okay. And that's on my Facebook page. Okay. Um, Charlie Toledo or Susco Council. What happens is the organization's Facebook doesn't get as much exposure, and I can't post everything there. Yes. Because it's an organization, mm-hmm. whereas then I can post up on my page. Got it, yes. Under yeah. my name. And then there's 100,000 Charlie Toledos on Facebook, so you have to say Charlie Toledo Napa. Okay. California. Cool. And I, when I got on Facebook, I didn't know one of my friends had said something, and I, I said, well, how come you never you know, friended me on Facebook, and she goes, well, I started to, but there were so many Charlie Toledos, and I said, what do you mean? And then I went, and there's like 30 or 40. Oh, goodness. Which was really funny, and and, and the funny thing to me is that we're all doing interesting things. I was going to try to set up a Charlie Toledo Facebook page, Yeah. but then nobody responded, and somebody filed a complaint. Oh. (laughs) You know, you're not supposed to solicit people you don't know. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) The Facebook criminal. I was trying to associate with people I didn't know. Yeah. Uh, The other Charlie Toledos of the world. Uh, But, you know, collectively, we're all doing really interesting things. Oh, right on. Navajo race car driver in um, Arizona, and this uh, hip-hop singer in the Philippines. Wow. It's just always really interesting. To yeah. See. And and we seem to be around the world. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's exciting for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. My doppelgangers. Yeah. Um, so I love talking to you again. Yeah. I don't know if we're at the time. I sort of can see the clock. But I'll let you tell me. I mean, because I could keep talking. I think the important thing, you know, if anybody is available in San Francisco, we're mm-hmm. having this Cedis or Cedaw kickoff. Uh, tomorrow okay. at the African Arts and Cultural Center, and people can come to the door and join. There is a, a cost, but nobody will be turned away if okay. they don't have money. You know, any donation will be accepted, but that's going to be from uh, 4 to 7 at the African American Art and Cultural Complex. Okay, and that's on Fulton Street, correct? Yeah, that's okay. 762 Fulton Street. Okay, wonderful. And so it'd be great to have anybody show up, and of course we do need the support of men and yes. women. Yes, yes. But even if you can't come, you can tap into that website, you know, the... Um, 
womensintercultural.org or win.org or CEDA uh, mm-hmm. is actually a, a whole, there's a city, uh, Cities for CEDA mm-hmm. blog that is set up specific to, a t- there's a toolkit of what you would do if you wanted to get your city to implement uh, human rights protection for women and children. Oh, right on. And so that's all, so you, even if you can't come tomorrow, you can, you can go to the, you know, find that on Google that. Uh, or go to my Facebook page again also. Um, and then Suskel Intertribal Council is also a web, you know, .org. And we're doing all the work that we're doing that I described. And we need support of a lot of people because there's no money at the state level right now for construction. Um, so we're just looking for donations of individuals to help us, you know, to construct the, that BAMCOR house that I was talking about earlier. Cool. That I think will be a prototype for how construction is done everywhere yeah so if you want any of those informations you can google you know me or facebook charlie toledo or susquehanna intertribal council women's intercultural network um sometimes you can just you can just google in ceda c-e-d-a-w and you get a lot of historical information about that but really what's exciting now is the cities for ceda campaign and that's going to be a toolkit because really it's not organized it just means that you would go to your city council your county supervisors and request that they implement this. Just like this one gal, Krishante Damara, she went to Willie Brown and he signed the treaty. Hmm. And once he signed it, he put it into implementation. And that has uh, had a huge, small improvements in the city of San Francisco that people aren't even aware of are a direct outcome of that, uh, him doing that. Yeah. You know, just the lower curbs. You know how they had the curbs with the bumps on them? Yes, yes, yes. That's, yes. that's from the CEDAW thing. Oh, right on. Because it's women that are pushing strollers and women that are pushing wheelchairs mm-hmm. that really need that lowered curb. Mm-hmm. And then that's a human rights thing because it's about mobility. Yeah, and accessibility. Accessibility, mobility, and safety. Yes. And so those lower curbs, and then they lowered the curbs, but then I, I didn't realize the reason we had curbs so cars wouldn't drive over it. And then that's where they put the bumps, the yellow and the bumpy. So that if a car hits that area where they might go into the sidewalk, they are alerted. Hmm. And that's all an out-branch of CEDAW. Oh, so people don't realize how many little ways their life would improve yes. by implementing this, again, in the community that they live in. Yes. And that's just a group of people or one person sitting down with the mayor or the city council and making the presentation and then starting to lobby for that to occur in their town. Mm. And then we have, because it's San Francisco, and there's actually other cities, Los Angeles just signed on, uh, Santa Cruz, Berkeley. I think Oakland is signed on. Uh, th- this is more recent, just in the last year or two. And then Kansas City, there's there's cities across uh, the United States. I think there's about 77 right now in the United States that mm. are at some stage of implementing the, the human rights protection for women and children in their city. Wow. And so that's something that everybody can somehow get involved in and not be really at any risk or danger yeah. or comfort. <laughs> Right People on. like their comfort. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> but I love what you guys are doing with Mutiny Radio, and I hope we can set up some kind of partnership here in Napa that we could be doing something similar. Oh, to what yeah. That would be wonderful. Because, again, it's like all of us having the printing press. Yes. So yes. anytime that you want to bring me on air, I just set a time aside like I did today to, to talk with you. Sure. Love it. Yeah, it was great to hear from you, and I learned a lot. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. And so let's become friends yes. on Facebook. Okay. Oh, yes. We will. Good. All right. Thanks again, Charlie. Oh, thank you. All right. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. 
So big thank you again to Charlie Toledo for calling in, and you can check out more information about the Suskel Intertribal Council if you go to suskelcouncil.org, and that is S-U-S-C-O-L-C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. Uh, we play in a bit more music, and then we'll get back with a few more news stories, as well as additional ways you can help uh, support the protectors of the water out in North and South Dakota. So here's some more music, and we'll be back in just a little bit. Ten years ago, no, eleven years ago, the man who really knew how to play this 12-string guitar died, Judy Ledbetter. He taught us some of the best songs we'll ever know. wonder how many of you know this one. started out from the cabin door with a glass of water, but he couldn't see her, so he sang it again. Do you think I got nothing to do all day but bring you glasses of water? I'm busy too. Bring it in the bucket, Sylvie.
And welcome back to the weekly review. That was Pete Seeger with Bring Me a Little Water, Sylvie. So um, we'll, we're going to be talking a, a little bit about some ways, other ways that folks can support the, the folks who are uh, in North and South Dakota uh, protesting the, the pipeline being built. And so we've posted this on the Weekly Review webpage, which you can check out at facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And this is a stand in solidarity with Standing Rock. So the first link um, where folks can go and you can support by, um, as we mentioned earlier when we were talking with Charlie, is uh, folks need camp supplies. So if you go to gofundme.com slash sacredstonecamp, and again, that's gofundme.com slash sacredstonecamp, S-A-C-R-E-D-S-T-O-N-E-C-A-M-P. And if you go to the um, website, they have, uh, you, you can just donate, um, and that's pretty awesome, pretty easy for folks who do online donations. You can help them out uh, financially if you're able, and or if you're not able, you can also share the link so other folks can, can uh, spread the word. Uh, also, there's a legal defense fund, and that is at uh, Fundraiser, and that's F-U-N-D-R-A-Z-R dot com slash campaigns, and it's D19 F-A-F. Again, that's uh, Fundraiser, F-U-N-D-R-A-Z-R dot com slash campaigns, forward slash, I should say, D19 F, capital A, lowercase F. And we've also posted this on the Facebook page, so you can go there directly and you can help out with legal funds because uh as we know the folks have also been targeted by law enforcement and then there's also the standing right uh standing rock sioux tribe and that's at standingrock.org so you can find more information there as well if you feel like tweeting if tweeting's your thing and you want to just uh forward these links and spread the information to your networks you can do so uh one uh, hashtag is hashtag no d-a-p-l solidarity sf which was for the action in san francisco you can also do hashtag no d-a-p-l uh, which is the stands for the dakota access pipeline or you can do hashtag love water not oil hashtag keep it in the ground so there's several ways you can support again spread the word you can support by financially uh many many ways so yeah, sending much love to all the folks out there and everyone doing their part to, uh, yeah, to, to spread the word. So, uh, yeah, that's what we do here. That's one way of, of staying active is to be aware of what's happening and to find ways that we can be helpful and to alert everyone since the media doesn't seem to want to do that. But I guess we can be the media and we can help, uh, we can help with that. How about a positive news story? How does that sound for folks? So this comes from Canada. <laughs> One day there'll be a positive news story from the States. And there are like, a lot of good things happening here as well. Um, but this is about uh, homelessness. And there's a story about how in Utah they decided to provide homes for homeless folks and how that actually helped. Imagine that. And this will be something similar. This is from Medicine Hat Canada. So I'm playing the video. This was on Upworthy. And this came out in March. Um, but I feel it's also just really important to reiterate how making sure people have their basic needs being met um, will help a lot instead of people complaining about things, uh, just helping people on their, uh, with their basic needs. So I'll be playing this video and there's some, uh, there's subtitles as well. So for what's not, uh, I'll be talking over it. That sound good. Okay. So we will just get that started in one moment as I, uh, all right. And <laughs> 
Here we go. So it says, this Canadian city has solved its homeless problem. And there's a view. Thanks to its housing first plan, all 60,000 residents of Medicine Hat have a roof over their heads. In the old days, um, we would say to somebody, you know, you want a, a place to live, you, you better get off the drugs, you better get off the alcohol, you better, you know, this is the mayor of Medicine Hat and then we'll talk talking. To you. Um, but housing first basically is the complete opposite of that and says, no, you housing first is exactly what it sounds like. The city found it was cheaper to build or provide housing for its homeless population. Housing someone can cost as little as $20,000, but someone living on the street can cost the city up to five times that. It also saves money in ER costs and other resources. So you can't, you know, it's pretty hard to solve your problems, personal problems when you're living under a park bench. I didn't believe it could be done, uh, that you could solve a housing problem. And uh, when you when you do solve it, every, everybody's across the entire continent is interested in this, and it's also proof that it can be done. Okay, so that was a, a clip. Um, we actually just got a call from Gail, so Gail wanted to say hello. And uh, so there's that. So, of course, pretty basic making sure everyone has their getting their needs met is uh, as far as housing goes is uh, a good place to start moving along with some more uh, this is comes from uh, voices of community activists and leaders which is vocal NY and folks were protesting the mass murder of people um, who are using drugs uh, under the orders of the Philippines president uh, Rodrigo Duterte um, and this was including uh, act up New York, uh, Damayan Migrant Workers Association, Harm Reduction Coalition, Treatment Action Group, and New York Harm Reduction Educators, which is NYHRE. Uh, and so I'll be playing uh, some clips from them. And let's take a moment for it to load. And there you have it. That's uh, don't really need a commentary for that, uh, but just great to share what's being yeah. folks coming together. Ramon Castillo, Herculano Kula, Zeboni, Abuji Runas, Ramon Malalang, Emilio Feliciano, Adan King Gatula, Ramon Carlos Caveron, Hernan Aquino. Adonis Valley, Randolph Torres, Carolina Diador, Adria, Ramon Castillo. So as also from folks um, just talking about what's happening in the Philippines. So it's important to share that information as well. And we'll have more information um, as that's been, I feel like the news, it's, you know, we hear certain things and um, I recognize that this is like only like a small percentage of of what's happening in the world, but it's important just to, to speak about what's happening and the injustices that are happening all, all around the world. And it's really inspiring to see people taking action uh, everywhere. San Francisco, the city that I currently live in, 
has become the first city to ban the sale of plastic bottles. This is from Health Nut News. I have never read this. Uh, I've never read this uh, website before, but I think this is positive. If you defend Mother Earth, uh, this is from February, but I still think it's pretty cool. We're going to share this because as much as one wants to talk about what humans are doing, you know, negatively to one another and the planet it's positive to think about actions that are taken. And this is similar goes back to what Charlie was speaking about with policy and how as critical as one can be, I'm speaking from my own perspective of the justice system and the law system, positive changes can be made. Uh, plastic pollution is one of the greatest burdens to the environment. Believe it or not, enough plastic is discarded every year to circle the globe four times. Even worse, it is estimated that 50% of the plastic on the planet is used only once before being thrown away. To curb the issue of plastic pollution, the city of San Francisco has just done something monumental. It has become the first in America to ban the sale of plastic water bottles. The move is building a global movement to reduce the amount of waste from the million-dollar plastic bottle industry, which is taking a toll on the environment. Over the next four years, the ban will phase out the sales of plastic water bottles that hold 21 ounces or less in public spaces. A waiver is permissible if an adequate alternative water source is not available, reports Global Flare. Think Outside the Bottle campaign, a national effort that encourages restrictions of the eco-unfriendly product, was one of the largest supporters of the proposal. While the San Francisco ban is less strict than the full prohibitions passed in 14 national parks and on a number of universities in Concord, Massachusetts, it is a step in the right direction. Those who violate the ban could face fines of up to $1,000. That's certainly an incentive to invest in a reusable glass bottle. The ban is another step forward on our zero waste goal, says uh, Joshua Arce, uh, the chairman of Commission on the Environment. We had big public events for decades without public bottles public without plastic bottles and we'll do fine without them again this isn't the first effort by the city to curb plastic pollution in fact san francisco banned plastic bags and plastic foam containers by 2020 the city aims to have no waste going into its landfill its diversion rate now stands at 80 percent what did the american beverage association which includes coca-cola company and pepsico have to say about the plastic bottle ban the ban is nothing more than a solution in search of a problem. This is a misguided attempt by blah, blah, blah. Fuck them. I'm not even going to read their quote because they're business people who don't care about the earth. San Francisco may be more re recycle happy than other cities, but plastic pollution needs to be curbed. Perhaps in the future, other cities will follow the city's bold lead and phase out plastics completely. And this article originally appeared on True Activist, reposted with permission. And the author of the article is Erin Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you for writing this. Thank you for sharing this. And this came out in again earlier this year in February. And that's right on doing something in the right direction. Um, so we're running a little bit low on time. I'll just go over a few other news stories. Um, and I do like ending on something positive like that, but that would be unfair to not mention some of the negative things and unjust things that are, that are happening. Um, so one thing that has been, ugh, really negative. Uh, the New York City man who recorded Eric Garner's chokehold death uh, takes a plea deal, and he's going to serve four years in prison, and you can find that article at theroot.com. So again, uh, being the messenger and recording something violent and illegal from, you know, recording that, um, one is still punished, and that just goes to show how desperate the, the quote-unquote justice system is for punishing people for 
wanting to hold people in power accountable. And I think that's really disgusting and unfortunate. And we need to find a way to remove that from happening because how is it that this person is being punished when all he was doing was recording something uh, and sharing it with people? He was standing up for justice and he's being punished for it. And that's atrocious. So, ugh. So, and that's something that happens a lot. And I feel like we would live in a much different kind of society if the messengers weren't killed or weren't threatened and whistleblowers were not threatened for speaking the truth. But that's how people in power stay in power, is by threatening people who tell the truth. Um, so there's another, this is something else that I'm going to play. This is from July 20th. And um, this is talking about protests. And some folks ask, well, why protest? And as if to say that nothing important happens because of it. And this also goes back to what Charlie was talking about with the uh, occupation of Alcatraz and um, how a lot of it is to um, bring awareness uh, to what's happening and to get people's attention. So this is uh, uh Dr. Umar Johnson, uh, protest is the first stage of any political economic struggle. Protest is your marketing program to let the world know, uh, and he says, what I stand for. So I'll play this clip. So when you do nothing about misbehavior, mm -hmm. then you're actually supporting its repeating now, itself. Now what do protests do? Because people protest and they say, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I love the unity and I, and I love the unity of African-American people. I, I, I wish we could be more unified when it's not just a, a brother dying. But I feel like sometimes the protest, what is it getting accomplished? Okay. You know? And the reason I ask that is because, you know, you protest, you shut down a highway, there's an ambulance that's trying to get somebody to... A hospital, that person dies in the ambulance. You know, mm -hmm. I'm stuck in traffic. I can't pick up my kid at 5 p.m. So what is the protest actually doing? Is it, is it going to make the cop look at us any better? Like, what can we do besides, I think, the protest? I don't know if the protest really worked. Right. Well, first of all, we got to keep in mind that the black person is normally dead before the ambulance shows up to get him in the first place. True. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> so let's be clear on that. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, Envy. Protest is the first stage of any political economic struggle. Right. Protest is your marketing program to let the world know what I stand for, what's happening to mm -hmm. me, and what I want. Protest allows you to control the public narrative about your struggle. Mm -hmm. Without the protest, the world doesn't know why you're doing what you're doing. That's so real. protest is important mm -hmm. because it is your way to put out your message. Gotcha. So you can't do nothing without it. The problem with black people is there's nothing after the protest. Right. Do you understand? The protest becomes the goal instead of the means to the end. Okay. So um, I would love to keep on going. However, we're running out of time. And coming up next will be Global Val with Women's Magazine. So uh, to wrap up the show, a lot of awesome things. I learned so much today. So thanks again to Charlie Toledo for sharing all that information and that history with us. There's so much that we're not taught. And I am very grateful that we were able to speak with Charlie. So again, thank you so much um, for the elders and for everyone who has spent their lives and taken a lot of risks um, there's a lot of things that we take for granted. I can speak, only speak for myself, but I know there's a lot of things I'd probably take for granted that I do take for granted. So I'm very grateful for folks who have fought for justice and continue to fight for justice and to share their work and their knowledge with us. So very grateful for that. Um, sending much love and solidarity to the folks um, protesting the pipeline, uh, folks everywhere doing good, speaking up, 
uh, taking risks and speaking up and sharing truth and encouraging others to do the same and having conversations because that's how we evolve. So on that note, it's been a good show. Uh, thanks again so much for listening. Thanks to Terrence Miller. Um, you can find that track PTSD um, on SoundCloud and it's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E. Miller is the last name. Again, it's PTSD by Tech9 and the, the number nine instead of uh, the letter I featuring King Caton, that MP3. And I've also posted that on my uh, Facebook page. So you can check it out there. Um, thanks again for creating awesome music. So we'll be ending with some more music about water. Um, much love to everyone out there. Compassion, uh, forgiveness, good stuff. That's all I got. That's a lot of stuff. That's a good thing. Okay. Ah, <laughs> it's been a show indeed. So, uh, this will be going out to the river and the water, all the water out there. This is called Across the River. And have a lovely week, everyone, and we'll be back next Friday.